The hottest team in the NBA is your Cleveland Cavaliers. And to talk all about that, let's go to the hotline right now and bring in the outstanding Cavs beat reporter, Cleveland.com. Follow him on Twitter, at Chris Fedor. He is Chris Fedor, joining us from Washington, where the Cavs play the Wizards tonight at 7 o'clock here on WHBC. Chris, thanks for making time for us. Hottest team in the league, riding another winning streak of six games, and they've won 15 of their last 16 or whatever it is. How has this happened, Chris, from a 13-12 and 12 start to the hottest team in the NBA? I think there are a lot of different factors, guys. I think the minute that Evan Mobley and Darius Garland went out for an extended stretch, a lot of the pressure and a lot of the expectation was kind of taken away from this team. Um, and I think they're playing with a different level of freedom since then. Obviously, they've tapped into a different offensive identity. They're passing the ball more than any team in the NBA over the last month and a half. The only team that's shooting more three-pointers per game is the Boston Celtics, the best team in the Eastern Conference, arguably the best team in the NBA. They're playing more four-shooter lineups, so the personnel fits better with a team that wants to space the floor, pass the ball, shoot outside shots. Um, Donovan Mitchell has stepped up his game in a big way where he's warranted of any kind of MVP recognition that anybody wants to give to him. Jared Allen has stepped forward. Um, and taking on a bigger role on the offensive end. So I think there are a lot of different factors that play into it. But the bottom line to me is that their offense has reached a new dynamic level while at the same time not sacrificing on the defensive end of the floor. And the Cavs focused this entire offseason coming off that horrible playoff performance against the New York Knicks. How can we get better on the offensive end of the floor? What can we do within our system? What can we do from a personnel standpoint? And this is a much more dynamic offense than the one that got booted out of the playoffs um, in a non-competitive series against the New York Knicks. And it's a better, more diverse offense than what the Cavs showed um, in the first couple of weeks of this regular season. Chris, you mentioned the fact four shooters, and it got me to thinking, and I heard this on the radio the other day. One guard, one center, three shooters. That works. Will it continue to work? And how do you work? Darius Garland back into the fray. Well, I don't think Darius is the big X factor in this whole thing. I think it's more Evan Mobley because, you know, if the Cavs are going to be committed to playing Jarrett and Evan Mobley guys in stretches, um, they're also breaking them up because Evan Mobley is essentially the backup center as well. But there are going to be um, times throughout the course of a game where their minutes are going to overlap and they're going to share the court together. So how can they create that spacing? How can they continue to be the same kind of offensive team when they're on the court together? That, to me, is the variable that is going to determine a lot moving forward. Like, Darius fits this style. He can pass. He can shoot. He can score at all three levels. Um, He can play on the ball and off the ball. He can move without the basketball. But Evan Mobley, during the time that he was out, he was being replaced in the starting lineup by Dean Wade. They're different stylistic players. Dean is a space-the-floor, stretch-power forward that takes about five to six three-pointers per game. And the backup power four minutes were going to George Niang. So the four-man, it wasn't Evan Mobley anymore. It was guys who are going to take a high volume of three-pointers. Now Evan is going to be the power forward again. The spacing is going to be different. The shooting prowess is going to be different, and that's something that the Cavs are going to have to continue to navigate as they go through 
um, the remainder of this regular season and into what they hope is an extended playoff run. Chris, I'm with my partner. You're not worried as much about D, D, uh, Darius Garland as we are. And the reason I'm worried is the stanky leg that we see. The ball stops. When the ball moves, the ball has energy, and the offense looks better. When Garland and Mitchell are out there together, it tends to get stagnant, and we see more one-on-one stuff. Do you think by sitting out and watching and seeing how they played, that could help Darius Garland? I think sort of, to some degree, but at the same time, Darius has to be Darius, and Darius is an elite-level point guard in the NBA, in part because he's one of the best pick-and-roll players in the league. And he has a great partnership with Jared Allen. And I think the important thing for the Cavs moving forward is to not just play one style of offense or not just have one system on the offensive end of the floor. Their identity is certainly what it is. But within that identity, you have to find different paths to success on a possession-to-possession basis, on a game-to-game basis, on a series-to-series basis. And now because the Cavs went through this stretch where they went more away from the high pick and roll and they went to more off-ball movement because the personnel kind of dictated doing that, they can blend those aspects of offense into some of the things that Darius does really, really well, which is the pick and roll stuff. Um, And I think it's important to have diversity within the offense. And I think they have shown that they can do that and they can blend those guys together. And in saying that, when it comes to Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell, like I know at times it can look wonky, and I know at times it can bog down, but this is one of the best duos in the entire NBA, and the numbers support that. With Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell on the court together this year, the Cavs are outscoring opponents by nine points per 100 possessions. That's along the same lines of Damian Lillard and Giannis Antetokounmpo, that is better than Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. It's better than Luka Doncic and Kyrie Irving. It's better than Devin Booker and uh, Kevin Durant. And it's right there on the same level with Nikola Jokic and Jabal Murray. So if you look at some of the best duos in the entire NBA and how they fit together and how teams perform with those guys on the court, the Cavs are still at their best and extremely formidable when Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell are on the court together, even though sometimes it can look a little bit different. Does it translate to wins and losses, though, Chris? It's one thing to lead when you're out there scoring points, but does it add up to wins and losses when they're both playing this season? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, they won 51 games last year with those two guys together. And I think part of the reason why um, there were some stumbles throughout the course of the season, at least early on, is because there were a lot of things that the Cavs were trying to figure out. They were learning how to play with Max Struess and George Niang. They were implementing different defensive principles. Guys were in the lineup, out of the lineup. J.B. Bickerstaff was trying to see what lineup combinations were going to be the best moving forward, what works, what doesn't work. And I think part of why the Cavs got off to a slow start from a win-loss record, beyond the fact that they had a really difficult schedule at the beginning of the year, is because there were things that they were working through. And now they have figured those things out. They have worked through some of those growing pains. Max Struess more comfortable. George Niang more comfortable. These guys as a whole more comfortable. All those different factors, I think, are contributing um, to this rise that the Cavs have had. 
And I think you have seen since Darius came back and Evan came back, it's not like all of a sudden they're losing games with those guys on the court. They're playing just um, a similar style to what they showed with those guys out, and they're having the same success in the win-loss record with those guys out. When you've got the hottest team in the NBA, it sure is nice to talk to Chris Fedor about the Cleveland Cavaliers during Super Bowl week, and you can read Chris at cleveland.com. And, Chris, December 15th, you lose Mobley, you lose Garland. A lot of us said, oh, woe is me. This team is ninth in the East. Here we find themselves February 7th. They're number two in the East right now. We also know tomorrow is February 8th, which means trade deadline. Do they make any moves? Do they need to make any moves? Yeah, so that's the question that I think everybody inside this Cavs front office is going to be asking until the buzzer sounds, guys. And look, they're going to be active. They were taking calls earlier today. They were making calls earlier today. So they're still looking around the league, trying to see what can we add that's going to help us. Is there something that we can add that's going to help us? And I think the question that they're going to ask is, is there any deal out there worth making? in terms of what we have to give up in order to get that guy and what that guy would ultimately bring to our organization. Because J.B. Bickerstaff plays nine guys, basically. He's extended that to ten out of necessity because he can't take Sam Merrill out of the rotation. Um, so, like, is the guy that they bring in going to crack the rotation? Is there going to be a role waiting for him? Will he get consistent minutes? And if not... Is it worth giving up multiple second-round picks just to beef up the 11th or 12th spot mm-hmm. on this roster? So that's the question that I think the Cavs are asking right now. And I think they're in a really good place. And it doesn't mean that they're Boston or they're the Denver Nuggets or the Los Angeles Clippers or anything along those lines. Um, and it's not to say that they have a flawless roster, but like they're not entering this trade deadline, guys, floundering, saying we need to do something to change the outlook of this season. I don't think there's a move out there that they can make based on the assets that they have and the lack of draft capital that they have that is going to drastically change the outlook of this season. They're just not in that kind of position to do it. Um, there are teams out there that I think need to make moves, and if they don't make moves, then I think the complexion of their season changes. Um, the Lakers, right? The Bucks, they don't have enough defense. The Philadelphia 76ers need somebody to replace Joel Embiid. Like, those teams are going into the trade deadline with a little bit more urgency, a little bit more desperation than what the Cavs need at this point in time. So I think they're going to continue to look at all of their options. They've, they've obviously had conversations with a bunch of different teams, guys about a, a 3 and D type player, somebody who can pass, dribble, shoot, and defend their own position. Um, they had cursory conversations with the guy who got traded to the Detroit Pistons today, Simone Fontecchio. Um, obviously, Royce O'Neal, Dorian Finney-Smith, both on the radar. The Cavs tried to pull off a sign-and-trade for P.J. Washington this past offseason before they did the sign-and-trade with Miami for Max Struess. Um, so there are guys out there that you think could theoretically come in here and add some more depth and some more insurance. But I just don't see that the Cavs have a huge appetite um, for shaking up the chemistry of this team and the flow of this team in a significant way. Love talking Cavs basketball with Chris Fedor. Follow him on Twitter at Chris Fedor. 
and you can read him online at cleveland.com. And, Chris, you mentioned Royce O'Neal. Didn't they try and go after him last year at the trade deadline? Yeah, they thought they had a deal done, actually. They were down the road um, with a complicated deal that was all intended to get them what they needed to give to Brooklyn for Royce O'Neal, and he didn't go anywhere. Brooklyn decided not to trade him because they valued him. Um, I think if they would have been willing to move him, the Cavs would have had enough in order to get him. He's Donovan Mitchell's best friend. That certainly doesn't hurt. Got a bunch of playoff experience. Can guard basically two through four at this stage of his career. Can knock down playoff threes. So it is somebody that, um, and he's on a team-friendly contract that is expiring. Um, So it is somebody that the Cavs have on their radar for sure. What would they have to give up to get him this year, Chris? And is it different what they than what they were offering last year? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that Brooklyn is going to demand a first-round pick for this version of Royce O'Neal the way that they were last year because, again, he's on an expiring contract as opposed to last year when he had two years on that deal. So I think, theoretically, guys, the Cavs could get it done for multiple seconds and then some okay. of their ancillary pieces to make the salary match. But that's the thing, right? If you're trying to make the salary match, and Royce O'Neal is got a contract around eight to nine million dollars, then you're sending away. Chances are you're sending away, unless you pull in a third team, sending away somebody um, that is in your every night rotation and somebody that matters to the success of your team. So, would it be worth it for the Cavs to part with um, some combination of of Dean Wade and like Ty Jerome for salary filler yesterday? Uh, well, Dean Wade is one <laughs> Yesterday. of the best defensive players in the NBA. But here's the problem, Chris. You bring in Royce O'Neal, and like you said, if he's best friends with Donovan Mitchell, you start looking at the future and say, wait a minute, maybe yeah. there will be an extension to Donovan Mitchell. <laughs> I don't think Donovan is going to make his next future decision on whether he gets to play with Royce O'Neal for three months. And they're not real friends then. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, I, and Dean Wade, I know. Do you, though? He's, because it sounds he's a, like you guys are down on Dean. Well, he's a role player, Chris, right? Yes, that's correct. And he doesn't have the experience that Royce O'Neal does in the postseason. So for me, where I've seen the failure is in the postseason. I need more for the postseason, not in the regular season. That's waiting. why I'd be willing to get rid of Dean Wade. I've been waiting for a little bit more consistency. Kenny, you know I've been a big Dean Wade guy. It's all truth, right? I'm just waiting for a little bit more consistency from the shooting end of it. Yeah, I mean, I understand that. But that's not really his role on this team, right? Yeah, you want him to make a higher percentage of his threes. Mm -hmm. You want him to space the floor. And all that stuff would be nice. Um, But, like, a big part of what brings value to this team is his ability to guard basically any position on the court, and he's done that at a very, very high level. He's in the 95th percentile as a defensive player this year. That's like along the lines of OG Ananobi and Tari Eason and Jalen Suggs and Draymond Green and Giannis. So, like, Dean Wade has guarded some of the best players in the entire NBA, and he has held his own. And I think that level of defensive versatility is something that they can't afford to part with along with multiple second-round picks for a guy in Royce O'Neal who's probably going to play, like, I don't know, 12 to 16 minutes a night? Is like Isn't that what he'll play, that, though, Chris? 
Isn't that what he'll play, though, when everybody's healthy? He's not going to play 30 minutes a night when everybody's healthy, Wade. No, he's not, but he's a better defender at this stage of his career than Royce O'Neal. But don't you have Dean Wade and Isaac Okoro, same type of a player, guard the other team's best or second-best scorer, is not a consistent outside shooter but plays that role to try and space the floor? Can you afford having two guys like that that aren't consistent offensively but give you something defensively? I think there's still enough shooting volume that Dean Wade brings to the table that he's enough of a threat for the opposing defense that it's not all of a sudden like they're going to leave him wide open the way that they do or ignore him the way that they do with Isaac Okoro or Evan Mobley. I think there's enough of a reputation and enough of a volume there with Dean that he still is going to command a level of attention from the opposing defense, and that's going to create needed floor spacing and outside shooting for the Cavs. And on top of that, like I think the more guys that you can have that can guard at the point of attack, like Isaac, like Dean, like Karis LeVert, especially when you project forward into a playoff series with the Milwaukee Bucks and Damian Lillard, Giannis, and Chris Middleton, or the Boston Celtics with Jalen Brown, Derek White, Jason Tatum, the more guys you can have that can defend those caliber players, um, and, and no one's going to stop those guys, right? But make it yeah. difficult on them and have multiple bodies that you can throw at them to change the look and all that kind of stuff. I think that's beneficial. Can he stay healthy, Dean Wade? Isn't that a knock against him? I'm looking at his career. Sure. Most games he's played is 63 games in one, two, three, four, this being his fifth season. Yep. It's a legitimate question. And I think the other question is whether he can keep his confidence high. Um, because if you think about last year, like it really um, messed with him when Kevin Love got bought out and the version yeah. of Dean Wade that the Cavs got in the playoff series against the Knicks is certainly not the version that we have seen this year with the Cavs, a guy that's more sure of himself, a guy that's more confident, a guy that's not hesitating on some of those open shots that he's going to get. Um, so if he can keep his confidence high and if he can stay healthy, then I definitely think he can be an asset for the Cavs moving forward. But I will admit that those are two legitimate questions that the front office has to ask in terms of um, how much they're willing to invest in him um, at the expense of making a move at this year's deadline. Because like, if they're going to make a move at the deadline, it's going to be more for a depth piece or an insurance policy, some protection on some of the more questionable guys that the Cavs have at the back end of their rotation. Chris, with the injuries in the East right now, with Julius Randle in New York, Joel Embiid, you mentioned earlier, we don't know how long he's going to be out. He's going to be reassessed, I think they said, in about a month for a meniscus tear. Cavaliers' style of play is shooting threes like crazy. Do they keep that up, or they try to like maybe pound these teams a little bit more? Because I don't know who really poses the biggest threat in the East right now, not named the Boston Celtics, if those two teams that have given us fits in the past aren't at 100%. Yeah, I don't know who who that team is either in the Eastern Conference. I think it speaks to, hey, the Cavs belong. We're not having a conversation about the Celtics being on a tier of themselves, and we're talking about the Cavs being in that same mix with those other teams that are legitimate competitors. Um, And I think that's a really, really good place for the Cavs to be. And I think there are reasons for them to feel like they can get even better as the season goes on. But, but I don't think that they're going to change this style all that drastically. 
I think they found something that works based on the personnel that they have, um, and they have found something that that has given them a different look on the offensive end and a more dynamic offense, which is something that they've been striving for um, since, like I said, getting ousted in in that first-round playoff series against the Knicks. And I think the big thing in all of this, guys, is that with Philadelphia potentially falling down the standings, and, and maybe New York and Milwaukee do the same thing. Like, we're probably having a different conversation about the Cavs season last year if they didn't see the Knicks in the mm-hmm. first round of the playoffs, right? Had they matched up with the Brooklyn Nets or something like that in round one, then the Cavs win round one. And it's a different kind of um, conversation that we're having around how successful last season was. So I guess what I'm saying is, the Cavs right now being in the number two seed in the Eastern Conference does a few things for their playoff chances. Number one, it gives them a potentially weaker opponent in the first round because I think coming into this year, so many people felt like, okay, the top three seeds in some order are locked in, Boston, Milwaukee, and Philadelphia, and then the yeah. other ones are just going to battle for four, five, and six. Well, it seemed like for much of the year, the Cavs were going to be on a collision course again with the New York Knicks a team that they don't match up all that well with. And if the Cavs would have faced the Knicks in the first round of the playoffs at the end of this season, who knows? That's kind of like a toss-up series. Maybe you give the edge to the Knicks. But if they get a lesser opponent in the first round, that could be the difference between winning that first-round series or not winning it. And beyond that, if they stay in the two-seed in the Eastern Conference, guys, they don't have to face, theoretically, mm-hmm. the Boston Celtics until the conference finals. So yeah. it creates a better path for them making a deeper run in the playoffs if they can hold on to the number two seed. The day before the NBA trade deadline. We'll see if they make a move tomorrow. I want Royce O'Neal by Dean Wade. If that's what it takes, uh, get it done. And Chris, fantastic stuff as always, my friend. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you again soon. You got it, guys. Anytime. Chris Fedor checking in live from Washington, where tonight the Cavaliers try and make it seven in a row as they take on the Wizards. We'll have pregame at 6.30, tip-off at 7 o'clock here on WHBC.